Today, I have the honor of interviewing Kevin Carter, 14-year NFL vet, drafted by the Rams, won a Super Bowl with the Rams, the greatest show on turf, played with the Titans, Dolphins, and Bucks, and finished his career with 104, 104, 104 and a half career sacks. Don't forget the half. That's right. <laughs> I got to get all of them in there. I appreciate yep. you doing this for me today. No worries, man. Glad to be on. All right. So first question, I wanted to start from the beginning. Uh, I read from the information that I could find that you didn't play football until your junior year of high school. What kind of led that to happen? And I can only imagine the coaches walking around the high school trying to get your six foot six kid on the football team. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I was sort of a late bloomer. And, and I think that, you know, people, they see professional athletes and they think that, you know, this person's always been, you know, this debonair, suave, like in control of himself, athlete, cool character. And it just very much wasn't the case. I, I was the textbook ugly duckling, you know, it's like <laughs> you got a bunch of you got a bunch of little cute ducklings there and you got this one, you know, um, duck that's not really a duck. He's really a swan. And, you know, and he's, he, he honks instead of quacks and, you know, it's all out of place. And that was me. I mean, I, I was, by the time I got to my freshman year in high school, I was probably about five foot eight, five foot nine. And I hadn't really grown or hit my spurt, like, you know, vertically, but my, I hit puberty and my hands got real big and my, my arms got real long and my feet got real big and my butt got bigger, but, and my head got bigger, but I didn't get any taller. <laughs> And so, um, you know, my freshman year, I, I went out for my, my, my JV football and basketball team and didn't make either one. I went to a large public high school, Lincoln High School in Tallahassee, Florida. And, you know, I, I was marching band was my thing. Um, so I, I, I kind of resolved myself to said, you know, if I'm not going to be an athlete, I'm going to be the best saxophone, you know, mm-hmm. um, player that I can be. I'm going to try to make first chair. Um, I made all county band, you know, as a sophomore and I was really pursuing other things. Um, I had a love for football. Now don't get me wrong. Now Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that, Oh, it just kind of hit me and I kind of stumbled into it. No, I wanted to do exactly what I was doing. Um, I, my, my life from the time I was three years old, I wanted to be a professional football player. I saw, you know, Ed Tutal Jones and Drew Pearson and Danny White and, you know, the Tom Landry coach teams. I watched Tony Dorsett and Tutal Jones and all those guys. And I was a huge Cowboys fan. My brother was a Steelers fan. Like there was no if, ands, or buts about it, what I wanted to do with my life. But it just wasn't, didn't seem like it was going to come to fruition, you know, and mm-hmm. which I'll tell, I'll, I'll tell anyone who's a kid, you know, hang on to your dreams, you know, because the, the, the timing of life is really uncertain. And, you know, and I, I like to read to enrich myself with different books. And one of the books I read was by Malcolm Gladwell, and it's, it's called Outliers. And it talks about, you know, the probability and timing of life and circumstances that lend themselves for people to do amazing things. And people don't do those things by themselves. So I only say all that to say that when I was a sophomore in high school and I thought that I had mono, mm-hmm. I thought that I was sick. My parents were taking me to the doctor. Um, my whole body is hurting. I'm nauseous all the time. My head is hurting all the time. 
and I went to our, our general practitioner, Dr. Kane. Love that man. Got to be a hundred by now, but he was, he was old back then. And he said, nothing wrong with that boy. He's just having growing pains. <laughs> and, uh, and man, I hit, I hit my growth spurt and I grew like seven or eight inches, like my sophomore year. And when I came out that, that spring of my sophomore year, going into my junior year, and I tried to play football and basketball, everything just made sense. I finally grown into my body and I had no bad habits since I hadn't played football when I was younger. Mm -hmm. So what, what they told me to do, I did. I was an easy sell as a, as a person to coach because I was a yes sir, no sir kid and mm -hmm. I had no bad habits. And I was catching my growth spurt at the time when I was learning the game of football. So you know, less than a year and a half later, I was all American, all everything. I was an inside linebacker. I was six foot six and 235, 240 pounds coming out of high school. And the rest, as they say, is history. My Now, my son, you know, kind of had a similar story. He, you know, is a tight end to Dartmouth now, but, you know, he didn't play football until his senior year. He played baseball and basketball and, and that's what we were doing. And, you know, he came out to football his senior year and took to it like a duck to water. So must be something in the water. <laughs> yeah. So you didn't play any contact football your entire life up until your junior year? Correct. Do you, Correct. now this is kind of just guessing, but do you think that had any effect on your eventual longevity in college and professionals not having all a few extra years, even if it was when you were during a kid playing contact sports? Um, definitely. I, I will say that when I got to college, um, there were other guys who were, you know, in the off season, like between your seasons, everyone has procedures, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they'll have a scope or, you know, have their knee cleaned out, or maybe they got some scar tissue in their shoulder or something, you know, something's bothering them. And some of these guys that I'd found out had had some of these procedures in high school. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't know what that was. Um, that, that type, that level of injury was very foreign to me because, Hell, I hadn't played enough football to really even, you know, be hurt or know what those injuries even, you know, how you even get one of those injuries. Mm -hmm. So the wear and tear factor is a, is a real thing. And I, and I tell people all the time, when you're 10 or 11 years old, your body is not ready to have, you know, 70 or eight car collision crashes on any given Sunday. It, it's just, you know, you're, you're still growing, your body's being formed, your bone density is not there yet. And by the time you get to where you grow into your body and you grow into yourself, you know, your body's ready for that contact. So I, so I truly believe that, you know, playing tackle football isn't a necessary thing at a, at a, you know, peewee league or five or 10 year old, you know, it's not necessary for you to be in the NFL. And in fact, the majority of guys that played for a long stint in the NFL, a lot of my friends, a lot of my coworkers, they were all guys like me. We played yeah. all sports. We played whatever was in season. We were multi-sport athletes and genetics sort of dictated, you know, who was and who wasn't. Um, by the time you get to where you're in high school, you know, the best athletes with the body types that have the propensity to take that type of abuse are the ones that go forward from there. Yeah, even in, even in my own experience, my parents, I played flag football all the way up until middle school. So I, you know, got started around 14, 13, 14, and wound up playing well in high school. And I always, when I, I see people, the kids playing 10 years old tackle football, I'm just like, yeah. it's not necessary. <laughs> it just doesn't <laughs> seem necessary to put them through that when they almost will get a more fun or better experience as you 
can barely pass the ball at that age, especially in tackle football. Yep. So I think I, I think the fun element is also not there so much when it's tackle at a younger age. In my well, opinion. yeah, and, and 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 there's always that you know one or two kids that really get it out there at yeah. that age, <laughs> and they're tattooing the other kids out there. I'm like, man, you you yeah. these kids are getting concussed and getting the you know getting the exactly. tar knocked out of them you know by some kid who who knows a four three defense in and out by the time he's eight and mm-hmm. you know I, I i don't know man I'm, I'm 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 really cautious when it comes to that especially with the long-term effects that a very violent physical game will put on your body you talk to any of us that played double digit years in the league man it takes years off of your life. You are you are doing your body a disservice. Your head is does not like you when you're done playing football. <laughs> your hands hurt, and you know, 25 years, 30 years, and and cleats. You know, I'm I'm always wearing Birkenstocks. You know, all the time. <laughs> That's yeah, and come and comfy shoes for that reason. So it definitely takes a toll on your body. Kind of a combination of your college career and high school career, and a little bit going to professional career. From my understanding, from a team success standpoint. Your team was very good when you were in high school. And then when you were at Florida on the Gators, you won three SEC championships. You were All-American and super successful from a team standpoint. But then your first four years in the NFL, the Rams weren't <laughs> too great. And what was that kind of like just from, I guess, an emotional standpoint and going from winning all the time, kind of on top of everything to the Rams who you know weren't as good the first few seasons? That's something that no one really prepares you for. Like people don't really talk a whole lot about the fact that if you are a high draft pick, you're not going to go to the best team. That's one of those things that is kind of a sliding scale in terms of, you know, how good do you want to be coming out? How much money do you want to make on that first contract? It was a culture shock, man. Like it was utter culture shock for me. Like I came from an environment where everyone was like team first and we're going to go the extra mile. We're going to stay up to practice and run sprints, you know, because, you know, we're going to make sure that we don't get outworked and yada, 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 and all this stuff and this team spirit and all that. And then I get to the Rams and not that I didn't have great people around me, not that I didn't have awesome teammates and coaches, but it was a different atmosphere. It was a different animal. It was a business. And everyone in that locker room was, you know, you're on individual contracts, you know, and you don't know what the person next to you is making, you know, it it, it all depends on where you are in your career, where you are in your deal, how highly you were drafted, what the circumstances around you, and that that differs from player to player, so the motivation from player to player differences, um, um, differentiates. It's hard to get 53 guys on the same page. It's hard to have to sell 53 guys on the fact that their contribution, no matter how big or small, is the difference between winning and losing. It's hard to get everyone at the timing of their life to be as selfless to do their mm-hmm. part in a team to win. So you got so many things that you're dealing with. You know, you're not there on scholarship and you're not in this la-la land where, you know, you're trying to create memories. It's like, no, you've got a limited time, man. The NFL stands for not for long and you better make hay while you're in it. So that type of every man for himself mentality doesn't always lend lend itself to you being the best team. So first four years in St. Louis, man, we were, man, we were hurting. I mean, at one point we lost, you know, five, six, seven. I mean, we lost eight games in a row one year and, and it it was bad. And we were not a good team and we were struggling to, to make, Hey, even when Dick Vermeil came in, you know, he came in my third season there in St. Louis. And first thing he said in this press conference, he says in three years, 
we'll be world champs, mm-hmm. you know, and the media, everybody's looking around like, no, this is a lofty statement, you know, and he says, you look to your left and look to your right, you know, the guy next to you may not be there, but we're going to go through this process and we are going to refine and build a championship team. And going through that time, those hard years, like I said, it was four seasons, four miserable seasons, man, where we were, you know, not a big market team. So you weren't getting the respect. You know, we had great players on our team that did not receive the recognition. I mean, I'm on a defense with, you know, DeMarco Farr and Grant Wistrom and Todd Light and Keith Lyle and Toby Wright and Roman Pfeiffer. I mean, a lot of great players that played a long time in this league. But, man, we got no recognition or you know any kind of notoriety for the things that we did we had one of the best defenses but you know our offense wasn't good and we didn't win games so we weren't talked about even Super Bowl season you know in a three-year period from 1998 to 2001 those three seasons I had more sacks in the NFL than anyone else I went to one Pro Bowl in those three seasons Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know what I'm saying and it was the year that we won it all and and it was all everything so it's like all the glitters isn't gold. You know that just because someone's being hyped up doesn't mean they're the best player, so to speak. And, you know, you have to get over yourself and you, you, know, you go back to really why you're playing the game. So mm-hmm. for, for me, having that culture shock of the first four years really put in perspective what I wanted out of the game because it wasn't going to be individual notoriety in the market of the team that I was playing for. It was, you know, I had to put that aside and say, I'm going to put my effort forth, the best effort that I have forth, so that we can win a championship and make a memory. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what ended up happening, you know, and, and all of us came together in that one moment in time, lightning in a bottle, you know, lightning striking. And for that moment in time, everyone put their ego and their agenda and their contract and on the back burner, everyone put it aside. Everyone put the team first. We were as Frank Gans, our special teams coach at the time, God rest his soul, used to say, we, we were elite warriors on the threshold of greatness. And everyone had that attitude of never letting the other man down. It was truly special to be a part of something like that. But I tell you, they say you can't appreciate the sunshine if you don't have the rain. Well, that's a prime example. Because for me, I couldn't appreciate what it was like to find and build and forge winning with a unit again and find that type of chemistry that I had in high school and college. And I couldn't really appreciate it until I'd gone through those four first four years in the NFL that were so hard psychologically mm-hmm. and everything else. So what kind of, what led to the turnaround? Cause, because going from a four and 12 team to a 13 and three <laughs> team and right. the great uh, the, year after then ref, uh, back reference to the greatest show on turf. And one of the most talked about, teams today still 20 years later how yep. how does how did that happen whether it be from a couple guys getting healthy bringing in i think Tor- is that the year tory came in <laughs> yeah like, we drafted like, we drafted tory holt mm-hmm. okay that 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 season we this is this is what happened when we came in dick Ramel came in first person he drafted was um either orlando pace or no grant wistrom and then um orlando pace and then Tory Holt. Okay, mm-hmm. the, those are the first three first round draft picks. The first that, that he that Dick Bill was there, and uh, the turnaround was was eerie because Dick Vermeil had a plan, and he had all these old coaches that were in place. He had Bud Carson, he had Frank Gans, he had Mike White, he had um, you know Carl Harrison was my defensive line coach. Um, 
you know, Jim Hannafin was our offensive line coach, you know, from, from the Washington Redskins for a long time. I mean, we had, we had all these like coaching legends, these crusty guys and, you know, the, the, they referred to them, they called them the magnificent seven, you know, like, so we got all these old guys, 60 year old coaches, gurus on our staff. And, you know, they were trying to teach us something that we had, that we didn't know, trying to teach us something that we couldn't grab hold of that we somehow lost sight of as a team. And those first two years, man, we were two and a half to three hour practices, both in pads and training camp, like the kind of practice that you can't even do anymore by league standards. Like I'm Mm -hmm. talking, you know, just horribly, horribly barbaric, you know, weeding out, so to speak. Those who didn't want to be there, those who weren't committed, you know, trying to make people quit. It was it it was hellish. And, you know, we, we almost mutinied several times, you know, during that three year time. Mm-hmm. But you ask, what was it like? What was the transition? How do we turn it around? That third year, okay, third year that I was there um, in the spring in the free agency, we brought in, we, we, we got Trent Green and he came in in many camp and things immediately looked different. We finally had a quarterback. We finally had someone that we could really stick our claim on and get behind the kind of stand up guy, not just a great athlete. Tony Banks was a great athlete and a good quarterback, but he wasn't the full package, you know, we were trying to, we going through quarterbacks kind of in the first couple of years there in St. Louis, but having Trent Green kind of solidified that offensive unit in a way that it hadn't been before. Mike Martz, who was an offensive assistant um, early when I was with the Rams, left it and went to Washington and came back. So he was back as well, back with, you know, this, this all vertical wide open offense, which would later become the greatest show on turf and, and free agency. I, I think the most important piece we picked up, was a free agent guy named Marshall Falk. (laughs) Um, You know, just this little running back from right up the road, you know, in Illinois. um, I mean, up in Indiana, rather, um, Indianapolis, you know, the Colts. And we bring him in and, you know, suddenly we we are a viable team overnight. And we knew we were different through many camps and into training camp. And what people didn't know is, you know, Kurt Warner was our number two. Kurt Warner ran our scout team the year before because he was the third quarterback on our on our roster we'd have to repeat plays on defense and we'd get frustrated and i'd get mad as a defensive lineman turning around yelling at you know i'm giving the business to todd light and those guys in secondary i'm like why are they catching every ball dude you know can we why do we have to repeat these plays every time they catch a ball like we're trying to do this right and he's like look man this guy kurt warner i don't know who that kid is but homeboy don't miss like he's got one of the best deep balls in the business and i'm telling you he's gonna be good and we knew that he was you know a capable quarterback even back then when he was running our scout team going to the offseason we we get rid of number two which was jamie martin he goes to jacksonville and kurt moves up to number two so we we, we've got trent and we've got kurt and we have we drafted joe germain from ohio Mm -hmm. state so th- those are our three quarterbacks going into training camp. The last preseason game, I'll never forgive Rodney Harrison for for blowing out Trent's knee in the last preseason game <laughs> that that year. Fourth preseason game, we're playing the Chargers, and literally it was the last drive of the game that the first unit was going to be in. And you know, Rodney Harrison comes in on a blitz and you know sacks Trent Green, blows out his knee. You know, just a horrible punk move. I, I don't you know to this day. I, I have, I have, I have beef with Rodney to this day. He knows it. And that's, that's fine. But we, we were without a quarterback and then, you know, like everyone is, and I know people remember, remember the famous speech from Dick Vermeil. He says, you know, 
we've lost Trent. We will rally around Kurt Warner. We will play good football. And, you know, my dad calls me and he's distraught. And I got all these people calling me up saying, what happened, man? You lost your quarterback, this and that. And I'm like, dad, I'm like, this guy, Kurt Warner's pretty good. I'm like, we're going to be okay. I'm like, we, we've got weapons now. You know, we've got Marshall. We've got, you know, Tory and Isaac and Ricky Prohl and Azakim and, and Tony Horn and all these weapons. We got, you know, Roland Williams and Ernie Conway. We got great tight ends. We got, we got a pretty good team, dad. We're going to be okay. And our defense, we're, we're solid. And, and I think that after the first couple of games, when people saw our offense on display, I don't think the league was ready for, for what we were dishing out. And defensively, we were playing with a lot of confidence. We were number one against the run that year. Um, we knew that if we gave our offense a little bit of time that we could build a lead and we would force you into, you know, taking higher risk plays in order to, to keep um, make up the distance that our offense was putting down. And, and so, you know, that year was, was magical, but it was one of those things that in the middle of training camp, coach Vermeil stopped practice. And I remember this day, like it was yesterday. And he, we were all kind of on the same barbaric, horrible practice training camp schedule. And it was two weeks into camp and we were like, here we go again. You know, I thought things were going to be different. We, I think we have a better team, but you know, Hey, just got to do whatever got to do. And he stops practice one day about two weeks in and he calls us all up and he's teary eyed. And he says, look, you guys are ready. You know, we finally worked ourselves into a position where we're ready to take the next step as a team. He says, you guys have sacrificed. We've trimmed the roster. And he says, this group is ready to win a world championship. He says, I want you to go in, hit the showers early. Okay. We're going to go have pizza and we're going to have beer and we're going to have fellowship together. We have just this 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 great blowout party together, and we're, that's all we do is fellowship. We're drinking, eating pizza, and you know, playing cards, and we're just having a great time as as teammates and everything. And the next day, we come to come to the locker room and look at the schedule, and it says, you know, the the schedule is completely different. Practice is an hour and forty five minutes long. We're in we're in shells, you know. And, and the minute we hit the field, everyone is in hyperspeed. I'm saying we're all like, dude. We, we, we've got this, don't, you know, don't F it up, you know, like do your part, be on time, let's, you know, so everyone had a heightened sense of awareness and we also had ownership, right, of, of, of the greatness that we were creating and for Coach Vermeil to, to break it down like that and say, look, we're here, we're ready, let's do this, let's take the next step. We trusted him and we believed him and we took the next step and we never looked back we were crisp efficient we believed in everything no one was was walking no one was dragging everyone was fighting and clawing for their piece of this championship run we were the most unselfish team first group that I've ever seen in a professional locker room in, in my 14 years in the league. I never had that again. I've come close a couple of times, played on some really good teams with great guys, but I never had it like that. So many guys were in the middle of contract years. So many guys were wanting so much more, you know, from, from a monetary standpoint and structure and no one cared about it. Everyone put it on the back burner and we just went out to make a memory. And mm -hmm. thank God we did that. Another question kind of compared to the team dynamic, you obviously had four future Hall of Famers on that team. You had yourself <laughs> yeah. on that team. There was a lot of talent on that team. The way, at least I know how media portrays it then, I 
wasn't around to watch how the media portrayed it then, but the media often portrays all the star players as the leaders of the team. Is that, was that the case on your team? Was Kurt, Isaac, were all you guys the leaders or kind of like you just alluded to? Was it like, what was that dynamic like? Funny enough, you know, the, the, we we were, we were all sort of co-leaders of the team. And, and the funny thing was like on, on defense, um, you know, we had a young second year linebacker who, you know, played at a small school, played basketball, a guy named London Fletcher. Maybe you heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> and and he, he was our starting middle linebacker and, you know, no one knew him. He came from, you know, some John Carroll University. I don't know if he didn't play football there anymore. I mean, he was our leader, you know, he and, and, our, and, the, and the guy who made the tackle, Mike Jones, those were our leaders on defense. But funny enough, they weren't pro bowl guys. Like they weren't the guys, you know, I, I, I led the league in sacks. I led by example, but I wasn't, you know, necessarily a vocal guy. We had guys like Todd light and Keith Lyle in a secondary who were, you know, seasoned and tremendous players, but you know, they weren't these vocal in your face leaders. We, we really had a really, you know, simple, but complex network of shared responsibility when it came to leadership offensively Kurt was a first year starter mm-hmm. so he wasn't <clears throat> the Kurt Warner that you see now he wasn't the the polished television talent you know making movies and everything else yeah he had you know and I'll say this and I and I say this I would say this anyway but I can say it you know not with a grain of salt being that Kurt mentioned this and he recognized Trent and his Hall of Fame acceptance speech in his enshrinement speech. That season, Kurt Warner had an angel on his shoulder. He had two coaches in the room. He had Mike Martz, but he also had Trent Green. Trent Green coached him and walked him and put his ego aside because that was truly Trent's team. You know, Trent mm-hmm. got robbed of taking us through that Super Bowl run. He saw another person do all of that, but he did it with the most class and grace that anyone could ever be asked to do in that situation he was still very much a part of our Super Bowl winning team there would be no Kurt Warner there would be no greater show on turf if not for Trent Green Mm -hmm. as if not for the unselfish nature and how much he gave to Kurt during that season so we we know that and we understand that but that was par for the course for our team that that was who we that was who we were having that type of environment that we created, we didn't, we didn't have one guy who was the spokesperson who was out in front. I mean, I, I remember our strong safety, Billy Jenkins was an undrafted free agent and he quickly emerged as one of our best players. I mean, we had guys, all types of guys that, you know, were unassuming that were fighting and clawing for their piece of, of greatness. And we had so many heroes. We have so many moments like the Ricky Pro moment. You know, and I mm-hmm. and I know and I've been the prolific park and I see the picture on the wall of the yeah. catch over his shoulder. But if he doesn't make that catch, man, we don't go to the Super Bowl, no matter how great the greatest show on turf was that year. Offense, we're still talking about 20 years later. The reason the reason we talk about it, is because we made a memory in that moment, like everything worked out. And there were so many moments like that Ricky Pearl catch every game. It was someone being a hero and it was someone that wasn't. A guy who was going to Hawaii was it was someone who wasn't Marshall Falk or who wasn't, you know, it'd be Billy Jenkins or Charlie Clemens or, you know, Azahir Akeem. You know, he's taking a punt back. Tony Horn, you know, 
undrafted free agent receiver, you know, like returned four or five kicks for touchdowns that year. I mean, we were so balanced and we were so dangerous at every single turn. We had no weaknesses because everyone was dead set on not being the weakest link that made us miss making that memory. You, you kind of mentioned the first year quarterback thing and a big conversation today, whenever quarterback is drafted is, is he a leader? Does he have the personality <laughs> to be a leader? Whether yeah. it be, um, I think they referenced Justin Herbert being a little bit more withdrawn. And you got to play with Kurt. You got to play with Steve. You got to play with two of some of the greatest quarterbacks to do it. How important do you think that narrative is? And is it possible for someone that's not as outspoken to, quote unquote, lead a team? Leaders are born. They're not made they're 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 created organically being a quarterback you have if your quarterback is a leader and has great leadership skills then it it enhances the position if they're not you're 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 lucky if you do have someone like a Marshall Falk in the backfield or an Isaac Bruce you know you have people that are these long tenured you know high football IQ guys who conduct themselves a certain way and are always turning in performances but I honestly think that's a little overrated. I mean, you, you can't just say this person is the kind of person I want leading this team. That's all speculation, man, because you can be the you can be you can, you can be really equipped to run a Fortune 500 company. And I can speak really well and eloquently and command the room and, and do all these things. But if I can't produce, mm-hmm. if, if I can't when I get on the field, if I can't produce, if I can't lead, if I can't enhance, you know, the performance of everyone around me, then I'm not an effective leader for Kurt. You know, Kurt was a first-year starter that year, so he executed, but his attitude largely was what it should have been at the time. He was happy to be there. He was happy to be the guy in the driver's seat and having so much fun seeing his NFL dream come true. I mean, obviously, you know, we're all professional athletes and whatever, but, you know, he had he didn't have time to adjust to that role. It kind of hit him you know, before he was ready. So if you hear him tell the story, he'd been preparing for it, but nothing can prepare you for that type of spotlight and that type of attention. And I'm thankful that, you know, like I said, there would be no Kurt Warner if it weren't for the structure that we had on that team. And, and when, I, when I see people like Ricky Kroll, when I see guys that I played with, we know that. We know that, you know, when people say, oh, you're only as strong as your weakest link, that team really, really personified it. Even though, there's guys that have gold jackets that are on that team, you know, and there's great players and everybody looks back, you know, the, the, the look back looks like, Oh my gosh, you know, you guys should have won a world championship. Look at the talent you had. Well, we were discovering and making that talent part of, part of those Super Bowl that Super Bowl run in those years, you know, playing for the Rams. That's why we're considered, you know, great players on the look back is because we were part of something special. So, but at the time we were all just, man, we were all just young dudes just trying to make our way. Kind of, I want to kind of transition and make my way through your entire career. In 2001, <laughs> you got traded to the Titans and I found an article from that time period where Mike Mart said, I think he'll have his best year at Tennessee. Things got stale <clears throat> with him for us. He was obsessed with his contract. It was a real distraction for our team. Hearing that now what was that situation like? Is is there bad blood? Was there bad blood? A lot of people today even see contract negotiations and it's an interesting talking point and what, how they go down or how, the, how they may sour or not sour a locker room. Honestly, 
contract disputes rarely sour a locker room. Okay. I'll say that more is made of that to the general public. And that's the perception. That's a perception changer to put pressure on the player. Like it's their fault. They need to like get a deal done. It's like, no, the the obligation is with the, the organization and the player to come to an agreement. So I think that part's a little bogus, kind of gets a bad rap. But I will say this, there was bad blood between me and the team at the time, just because <clears throat> I was grossly outperforming my contract at the time. First, first round pick, you signed this six-year deal, looks real good at the time, probably should have signed a four-year deal in retrospect, should have made sure that I could be free after, you know, a free agency or whatever, but I didn't. So I was going to honor my contract. That wasn't the issue. I knew that I was, I, I loved St. Louis. I loved Coach Vermeil. I loved playing for the Rams. Coming off of, you know, 98 season, I had, you know, 12 or 13 sacks and then had 17 sacks, you know, Super Bowl season. Like, I was, you know, establishing myself as one of the best defensive ends in football, and I was happy, and I was settled. Mm -hmm. My attitude was, dude, as an organization, why are you waiting till we get to the sticking point of contract yeah. negotiation and squabble, Okay. Like we're winning, we're making memories in Super Bowls right now. Like we won a Super Bowl in my fifth year. I had one year left in my own, my deal. Like, let's get this done. And so it's just a formality. So it's not a distraction. He says that Mike Mars said that it was, you know, a, a distraction for the team. I think it was a distraction for him. So I think in his first year as a head coach, and I've since talked to Mike Martz, you know, when we've discussed this and made amends and, you know, we hugged it out and everything. So mm -hmm. This is, this is, I'm, I'm not saying anything that's taboo, but I will say this. I was a younger man at the time and I was a little more hot headed and a little more, took a little more, a few more things to heart. And so did he, he was a first year head coach who was living under the shadow of Dick Vermeil mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and, and receiving the credit <clears throat> for, you know, the greatest show on turf. And I think being handed the reins to an NFL team after after that year and, and Dick Vermeil sort of retiring and then resurfacing in Kansas City. I mean, look, there's a business side to this and feathers get ruffled along the way. But I think he had a lot of pressure and, you know, and obviously what his success forced the team to do and how they executed with Dick Vermeil leaving and everything else. That was all kind of blurred lines that happened very quickly so for him the allegiance of certain players make a statement on your team mm -hmm. so for for him he saw me seeking my worth for what I put down on the field as a knock against him that I didn't want to play for him mm -hmm. you know he thinks had Dick Vermeil been there I would have said yes and signed the deal yesterday and I would have taken less money just to play for Dick Vermeule. That might be true. <laughs> that that might be true. Had had Dick Vermeule stayed the coach, I, I things might have worked out differently. You know, it, it it is as it is. And I and I think, you know, having having looked back on it, I would have done things a lot differently. I took things to heart and said some things and so did he that I think we both regretted. And I think, you know, and the media doesn't help. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, you know, they're writing articles about, oh, he's not committed and he's not, you know, he's a locker room lawyer and he's disgruntled. And he said, I'm like, well, that's not really exactly true. I'm not really, it doesn't affect the locker room at all. Like every, every player knows because we're all going through the same crap. Like we're all, you know, trying to balance, you know, family, home, 
contract, being happy in a place, getting the playing time you want, being featured the right way. I mean, everyone's going through that individual battle with your contract with, you know, to the team. Mm -hmm. So I think that that was kind of an unfair statement at the time, you know, which, which at the time I resented, you know, but, but I was, but I was gone. I, I was, was good riddance and, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Mm -hmm. I found a home in, in Tennessee and, and, and loved my, 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 my time from playing for the Titans. And, you know, I missed my teammates, but it was time for me to move on because, because of that reality of a business side that exists in the game. And you can play this game, man, for 14 years, if you want, and not make the money that, you know, that you think you're due and you walk away, you took years off your life and you didn't make the money and you're bitter. I wasn't yeah. going to have that happen. I, I was trying to go out there and like, I, I didn't play for the money. I, I played for the memories, the camaraderie, the greatness and a dream come true. But football was too hard to do without that money. So yeah. did, did, didn't play for the money, but wouldn't, wouldn't go out there and beat myself in the ground and run through eight brick walls every day. If, if the money wasn't right yeah it's kind of interesting what you said about building something and wanting to stay and you guys have all these great players I kind of feel like the only team even now that's really bucking that trend of always preparing for the future is the Chiefs you see them going mm -hmm. out realizing they have Patrick Mahomes in his prime they extend Travis Kelsey who I, I mean I guess he's kind of taking a pay cut possibly <clears throat> and everyone's taking a little bit less money to play together but right. they're one of the few teams that are kind of doing what you're saying and recognizing they have something special. And then on the other side of things, there's the Packers of Aaron Rodgers. And it's like, why aren't you building around yeah. one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the position? And that's a real thing. I mean, the, the reality of the business side to this game, you know, different organizations do things different ways. And, you know, you, you brought up Aaron Rodgers. And, you know, you have to remember the Green Bay Packers aren't a privately owned team. They're, they're, they're a publicly, you know, owned entity. So you're not working with an entity that has a, a, like a Mark Cuban type owner who's willing to, or a Kraft type owner who's willing to, you know, go out and spend the money and do things and, and leverage his business and a total network and all that billions of dollars around making this team great. Some people are just in it for you know, we want to win, but we're going to we're going to do it from a conservative, you know, conservative outlook. That's the Green Bay Packers have always been this way. OK, when, when they had Brett Favre and they had you know, Reggie White and Sean Jones and that whole crew, you know, what did they do? They won a Super Bowl when Brett was was young, took him to the Super Bowl. He had a, an all star cast. And then as the years go went by. He got close, but they, you know, didn't didn't hardly, you know, get back again, right? And and his greatness was still there, still one of the best quarterbacks to ever play, but he ended up going somewhere else and leaving. And I think the Green Bay Packers, although they took a lot of heat for it and a lot of flack, they're okay with that because it's part of their conservative approach to how they run their business. The Kansas City Chiefs are completely different. You know, uh, Mr. Peterson, they're 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 trying to like you know solidify winning and they're winning ways for years to come and they show you they love you by money that's that's mm -hmm. that's that's the thing they you can say you value me you can say you like my leadership but money talks and and yes a lot of those guys will take less to play in certain um situations and play with certain people but you know it's got to be guaranteed and it's got to be structured in a way where you can believe and the product and, and everything around you. And, and, and that's also a chance you take, right? I mean, you take a little less to stay. You're, you're banking on the fact that they're going to 
do what they need to on the other side of the ball so that your team is, is competitive in every way. So there's a lot of trust between players and organization when it comes to, you know, taking less to make the team better for longer. You know, the Patriots mm-hmm. did that for a long time. You know, you see guys come in because they want to be a part of it. You know, there's, there's different approaches to, to winning in this league. So with the Packers, there's been some discussion about Rodgers not wanting to play unless the general manager is fired. How knowing how dynamics work between the coaching staff and the front office and having been in that for 14 years, how true do you think that is? Is that something that you think players of his caliber even have the power to truly invoke today? I think we're nearing a time um, where they can, you know, Uh, obviously it's, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. I don't foresee any player having the ability to get a general manager fired or so, so to speak, that's, those are lofty. And, and, and it's mainly due to, like I said before about how green Bay runs its organization, the type of organization and team they are, they're much more likely to let him go um, than they are to, but I think it has more to do with the structure of his deal, you know? And, and I, you know, I was listening to, I think Chris Collinsworth, you know, was saying, you know, with different people or different analysts and, and greats are, are weighing in on the subject with, with Aaron Rodgers. And and I happen to, to kind of feel like Chris Collinsworth, you know, he's like, look, it doesn't matter what he says or does. It's good that he's kind of keeping quiet, you know, because that kid kind of keeps it classy, you know, and people can speculate about what, you know, what you're thinking. Do you haven't put anything out there? I, I think that's good. I think silence is good. But at the same time, he can retire if he wants or he can play for the Green Bay Package. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, and that in a nutshell is, is football. It's, it's, it's how you are bound to your team and the flexibility that we don't have in our sport, other sports, baseball, basketball, you've got a lot more leverage when it comes to, you know, I want to be traded. I mean, if you're an NBA star and you're one of those guys who, you know, has laced them up for eight years and you've been an all-star, you can fold your arms and just say, I'm not going to play trade me. You know, and and magically you get your trade and then you're, you know, you pull a Blake Griffin and magically you're not hurt anymore and you're, you know, having an all-star season. So it's like, you know, that doesn't happen in football. Okay. We don't have that type of free agency, all those things, the, 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 the players rights and the ability to move freely between teams. That is a newer concept thing in the NFL. We are, we are the had the most players but with the least amount of power when it comes to labor unions and, you know, and then the league itself, it's just the nature of, you know, we're fractured because there's so many of us on the field and it's just the, the nature of the beast. And that's the nature of the sport we play, you know, yeah, guaranteed contracts and that kind of thing. It's different because of how violent and how quickly our careers are curtailed. So I don't foresee the, the, you know, the league kind of going that way to the cancel culture. One guy can just say, I want this guy out and an organization is going to do that. Um, I think we're hard pressed to, to, to change the structure of NFL teams. Aaron Rodgers is the type of generational talent that probably could get a coach fired, you know, mm-hmm. if, if they decide, but they haven't made the commitment to him monetarily to make that happen. They seem mm-hmm. kind of dead set in their ways. Like you can play for us or you can retire. You know, that's yeah. kind of their position right now. And we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, one of the other is going to take place. Either he'll play for the Green Bay Packers or they'll trade him or he'll retire. 
you know, but nothing in between. I, I don't, I don't, I don't really see that really coming out any other way. Or he'll play and then wind up on a different team next year, which is so wild to think, you know, you, you always expect the greats to retire with your, with your favorite team, especially as a fan, me being a Giants fan, I got to watch Eli retire as a giant which was right. awesome but you know he, he didn't expect brady to necessarily retire with the bucks yeah. along with a super bowl with the bucks so it's i saw great. joe look man i saw joe montana playing for the kansas city chiefs when i first came into the nfl and i was like what you yeah. know i mean <laughs> it, it happens i mean you know at the end of their careers man you know emma smith was a was an arizona cardinal um Jerry I, see, Rice. I didn't even know that <laughs> yeah i'm telling you like everybody has that like you know like that that phantom picture you know in this obscure uniform you're like he played there you know yeah <laughs> and it's like yeah you know it's, it's like the extra one or two years you try to steal at the end of your career <laughs> mm-hmm. so kind of over the course of your career whether it be in high school college the four teams you played for in the nfl who is the biggest what if player for you that their career was just i know you mentioned trent green very briefly uh, that their career was either ruined by injury, never the same because of injury. For me personally, when I look just at from an NFL perspective uh, and as a Giants fan, I see Victor Cruz. He messed up his knee, had surgery on his knee, missed an entire season, never was the same. And as a fan, I never got to watch Cruz and Odell play on the same field, which still hurt is a little <laughs> sour to me yeah. today. So is there any player for you where you kind of like, <clears throat> man, if he would have stayed healthy, if he would have stayed out of trouble or something like that. Yeah. You know what? Funny enough. Um, and I'm going to go a completely different direction with this. Um, when I was playing for the Rams, my, my, my second year, I was there. Uh, my third year, we, we drafted a kid named Lawrence Phillips and God rest his soul. Um, and Lawrence was Nebraska, tremendously talented. I mean, you know, everyone remembers what he and Tommy Frazier did to my Gators in the 95 Orange Bowl. Um, I was playing in the NFL, then I, I was powerless to help them at home watching my television. But, you know, just a tremendous talent. I mean, Lawrence Phillips was the perfect prototypical running back. He was, you know, 6'2", 230 pounds, you know, ran a 4'4", 3'4'4" could could you know hard-nosed run through brick walls had amazing agility had great hands i mean so much going for him and you know to me he is he is a, a total question mark what if with that kind of talent i mean he could have been a generational talent at running back in the nfl for a long time and just you know unfortunate events off the field you know keeping his nose clean staying out of trouble you know, was the issue. And, 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 you know, we all know the story of how he went to prison and, and, you know, ended up passing away. But I mean, you know, he was a guy to me being a teammate. And I remember when we drafted him, how excited uh, Zach Wiegert was, you know, my, my, my buddy, Zach, we played together, you know, their early days of the Rams and, and man, he was so excited because Lawrence was coming to play for us. And when he came to camp, it was like, whoa, like this kid is special and it's just really, really unfortunate, but probably the biggest what if player that I remember from my career. Well, I appreciate that answer. I personally, you know, I'm from a different generation, so I don't, I appreciate the answers because I don't, I didn't know who Lawrence Phillips was. Get on YouTube, man. I know. <laughs> pull out those old, pull out those old Nebraska that's, videos. That's also, and, that, that's also <laughs> why I wanted to ask you that question because yeah. I come from a different generation and you having played with so many different 
high level athletes. There's some that just the public doesn't get to know about or they're they aren't remembered for what their talent was necessarily. Mm-hmm. You've moved on to a career with CBS Sports doing commentary. What led you to want to do that as an analyst now, I think mainly for college football, correct? Yes. Um, you know, the funny thing about broadcasting is I never thought I would do it. Mm-hmm. That's that's the, that's the funniest part. As a kid growing up, I had a speech impediment. I was a really bad stutterer and I stammered and couldn't get words out of my mouth. And, you know, and I, I had one of those you know, wonderful moms, you know, moms have a special place in my heart. You know, moms are the, the, the keepers of virtue and the, the reinforcers of everything wonderful and faith in this world. And, you know, and my mom was, you know, that lady walked on water, God rest her soul. And she told me that when I was a kid, she says, Kevin, you know, God is preparing you to be a great man. He's humbling you now so that when you get to be a great man, you remember where your help comes from. You remember who you are and how far God has brought you along the way so that you can be the type of great man that others will look to and the type of leader that people need to emulate. Not, not a blowhard, not a braggart, not someone who's boastful and prideful, but the kind of man that truly embodies, you know, God's greatness. And, you know, that was her message to me. And I'm like, you know, at the time I'm like, I can't even talk, you know, and you're saying that God is preparing me, I, you know, it's not what you want to hear. But funny enough, you know, I got older, got over the stuttering problem, was in band. So I was used to performing in front of people and doing things very public. And then, you know, when I started playing football, the attention that I got and, you know, and the, the fact that you're a good player garners it, it puts you in the public eye a lot, very public stage playing for the University of Florida in front of 85,000 every Saturday. And, you know, you get to do a lot of interviews. I was involved in Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Athletes in Action. So I did a lot of work with youth groups and churches where I did a lot of sharing of my testimony and talking in front of people. Um, I discovered that, funny enough, even though I stuttered as a kid, God had blessed me with a rich broadcasting voice. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I can... I when, when I first met you, I didn't know you were an uh, analyst. And then once I found out that information, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I'm, I, I had this voice. And during my career at different times, you know, I was told that I was a good interviewer. And I was, I was someone that the press would seek out and speak to when they would call certain people to come to the podium. And they were good representatives of the team and, and that kind of thing. And so uh, probably about in my eighth, probably in my eighth or ninth season in the NFL, I was playing for the Tennessee Titans and I was doing a lot of charitable foundation work through the Kevin Carter Foundation. I was, you know, doing stuff with Make-A-Wish and I'd always done a lot of charity work that was very visible, you know, very high platform stuff. And the more success I had with a lot of those things in the community that I was trying to achieve, it kind of lent itself to me being very visible. I got asked to go on the nightly news, news two there in Nashville. And the sports director was a good friend of mine at the time, a guy named John Dwyer. And, and he was, and he was kind of the face, you know, of ABC and did everything Titans and, and, you know, all the Titans fans knew who he was. And so he'd have me come on every Sunday night, you know, for the little sports extra. 
Mm-hmm. And I would come on and do stuff and I would, it would give me a chance to promote, you know, Hey, I'm having a bowling tournament, you know, come on out Titans fans and support, you know, make a wish or support, you know, I'm going to a habitat build and I could always get plugs. And so it became, it was a way for me to kind of get my platform message out there. And, and so, and, and I found that I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being in front of the camera and he was the one, John Dwyer was the one who taught me. He taught me how to, you know, write my own print, how to read from a prompter, just some tricks of the trade of broadcasting in case, you know, he thought that I was a natural and could do it. When I did eventually retire, um, I had to reinvent myself. I looked, I was a spokesperson for a social media networking company. I did some, got on the speaker circuit. Those things were fun. And they mm-hmm. paid well, but they weren't fulfilling. It didn't connect me to the game that I spent a lifetime building a name for and a platform. And so when I had the chance to broadcast, at first I thought it would be shallow work. I thought, man, this is, you know, like no one wants to hear me talk about who's yeah. good and who's not and what my opinion is. Why did anyone listen to me? I'm like, I don't, I, I think the people on television are just, they're just trying to move the needle and they're trying to get followers. And I don't, that stuff's not for me. And I tried my first broadcast job, which was a regional show out of Atlanta called SEC Gridiron Live. And it was me and Randy Cross and Tim Couch. And I had more fun every Wednesday night (laughs) doing that show than I had had in the last three years at that point. And I was closer Mm -hmm. to the game that I loved so much. The next, the very next year I was at ESPN and I was there at ESPNU for SEC Network for six years. And, and I've been with um, CBS Sports now for three. And the thing I've found is being an analyst gives me the opportunity to feed my addiction. It gives me the, 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 the ability to feed my, my football junkie addiction of breaking down the science, the chess game, why people are winning. This line, you know, is, is usually utilizing this scheme. They're playing cover two, the, the spirit, the pride, the, the evolution, the hand placement, the pad level, you know, the angles, the, you know, the probability, everything that goes into this wonderful sport of football. I was at a front seat and, mm-hmm. and I wasn't, I didn't have my time consumed like a coach where I was gone, you know, from my family. And at the time it was a great gig because my son, when I retired from football, my son, who you've met, who's a college student now, mm-hmm. was nine years old at the time. So I, I was there. Broadcasting gave me the ability to be there for all of his Little League games and all his AAU games and be around and, and still be connected to a game that I loved so much. So, you know, 10 years later in the business, 11 years later, I'm still loving it. Um, primarily a studio analyst for college football for CBS Sports Network. I do some NFL coverage as well. I'm kind of a Swiss Army knife, a jack of all trades. I can do mm-hmm. a lot of things in the broadcast business. So they they try to give me different assignments and I have a lot of fun with it. So really were, thankful for that career. Yeah. Were you as good at it at the beginning as you are now? Because we've seen no. some former <laughs> we've seen some former players like um Jason Witten, yeah. who you know, right off the field, straight into the booth on the biggest stage when it comes to live commentary. Yeah. And wound up not being so well received by the public and had a few yeah. 
clips and gaffes. What, what is what was your kind of perspective on that when you see him head into the booth or former players think that they're able to just jump in and do it right away? You can't, you know, they, there's an old saying, you just can't roll your helmet out there and expect it to play football for you. Even if that helmet is from a world championship team, you got to put the helmet on and actually use it. The same thing comes for broadcasting. You can't just go off of your laurels and the fact that you have this imaginary PhD in football that allows you to just talk and be the authority on everything football. It's It has to come down to how much do you study? How mm-hmm. much do you know your craft? How much do you understand the ever-evolving evolutionary craft of football? The trends change, the coaches change, the the players change. I mean, you know, things go from, from year to year and you have to be up on that material. You have to know the free agency moves and, you know, the grad transfers and everything else and coaching trees and pedigrees and how people are connected and that part of it. I love it. That that's the part I live for. So for guys that are coming into the broadcast booth, you know, that coming off the field, a lot of guys aren't ready for the amount of work that it is. A lot of guys aren't ready to, uh, if, if you're ready to approach it, just like your football career, then I think you're going to be successful. I came in hungry, eager to learn and wanting to know everything I could to get better. And to answer your question, no. When I first got on, man, I, I watched film of myself early and I cringe like to this day. Like I hate watching myself early in my career because I'm like, gosh, you know, was I that bad? And, you know, someone believed in me and gave me a chance and here I am still doing it. But the, the evolutionary process is, is real, but it takes a professional approach, just like football did, yeah. even more so. I can I can definitely connect to that because when me and my friend first started doing our podcasts, we were I think just graduated high school or heading into freshman year of college, and I've had to private those videos on YouTube because they are so bad, <laughs> poor, very bad attempts at humor, not elo- not uh, speaking eloquently or a consistent flow of speech, and it's just so <laughs> it's it's so crazy when you look back at how far. You've come, no matter how many people are listening to you, zero or uh, in your case, a few thousand <laughs> or tens and tens of thousands. As you know, a former defensive lineman and someone who's finished with over 100 sacks in your career, who are your three favorite defensive linemen to watch? Whether and we can include Von Miller and TJ Watt in that kind of category since they have their hand in the dirt all, all game long. Who are your three favorite or who are your, who do you think are the three best currently? Well, the three guys that I like to watch, um, one of them is the best in the game, and that's Aaron Donald. He not only has a superior football like Hugh, but it is matched with physical ability to execute in the precise fashion that he wants to. Okay, His get-off is amazing. He knows exactly what he's looking at for the, the key of recognition for him to change direction, put his hands on you. He's, he seems like he's five steps ahead of every offensive line he to get, plays against. And to be that type of player, you know, the type of intellectual football IQ you have to have to play that fast is amazing. And I think that's what people don't quite realize. When I say football IQ, for me, I had to learn so much about not only my responsibility, but the responsibility of everyone and everything around me, how the coverage fit in. Then it freed me to play fast. Like if I knew everything about what I needed to do, 
then I, then I could be free to, to just go wide open. Aaron is, he came into the league that way. <laughs> you know, he, he, he was on a different program. Someone got a hold of him a long time ago and his base reads of how he comes off the ball and attacks um, an offensive, you know, would be blocker is, is just superior. It, it, it puts the offensive lineman at a disadvantage, you know, most of the game. He's someone that I think, you know, is just, like I said, he's light years ahead of everyone else he's playing against right now. Sort of like J.J. Watt in that, in that respect. I mean, just high motor, but also physically just, you know, intimidating, imposing, um, never out of position, you know, star player all the way. Another person that I love to watch is an old guy, because um, I like old guys, right, that, mm-hmm. that have paid their yeah. dues and done it for a long time. But I love watching Dominican Sue. Mm-hmm. You know, he's another guy to me that knows – been playing long enough and i and i and i I remember what this feeling was like when i played you get to a certain stage in your career and you know it's like that old toby keith song you know i'm not as good as i once was but i'm as good once as i ever was Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's like i can't do what i used to be able to do i can't run through eight brick walls i can't play 80 plays and just never come off the field i can't you know my physical attributes are starting to leave me but what i have is an elevated football iq I don't make any mistakes. I have no wasted movement. By the time you walk up to the line, I know that from a chess piece, football IQ perspective, there are only so many plays that you can run out of the set you're in. And the Mm -hmm. stance you're in as an offensive lineman tells me what you're doing as well. The splits you have, the space between you and the tight end, whether it's the tight end off the ball, the quarterback's cadence. There's so many things that I see pre-snap that are happening that allowed me to still play the same game I played in 37 that I played when I was 27. Okay. That's, that's where Indomitian Sue is in the game. Like as I perceive it, because he has a, he has a barbaric strength that's mm-hmm. there, but he, but he can't move like he used to be able to move, but he knows from a power standpoint, he's not going to find anyone that's going to overpower him from a brute strength perspective so he uses it he plays with it he uses that leverage and you know he creates so much for the players around him you know he he his his presence there in the middle talk about you know Shaq Barrett and JPP on the outside for the Bucks you know rushing the passer and you got a guy like Sue in the middle man it, it makes your job easy as an edge player playing as playing with alongside someone like that so he's someone to me that that I have to admire that's been doing it for a long time. I think he's in his 14th year now. It's like, man, like kudos to the old, you know, guy grinding out and still taking your respect in those latter years in your career. Cause that was me. Right. I I mean, I I wasn't the star that I was earlier in my career, but on any given Sunday, I might light your ass up for a couple of sacks. Like I still have that in me, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. and so that's, that's where I see him. You still have a two, three plays in you a game today. (laughs) <laughs> i've got i've got one game-changing rush still left in me i, I, I tell people I, I have one two-minute drive left that's it and then, then i would be in in therapy and traction i'd you know, take me off the field on a on a stretcher and put a halo on and, and put and put my arms and casts and everything else but yeah i've got one more two-minute drive pass rush in me the other person that i like to watch is a young player and I'm going the complete polar opposite direction is Chase Young, mm-hmm. you know, and I know he's a popular candidate for people to say, Ooh, you know, let's, let's, 
you know, so much potential there. It's a dangerous word, potential. But to me, he's still so raw. Yeah. To me, he still doesn't know how to use himself. To me, his football IQ hasn't elevated to the point where it needs to be. But, man, he's so hungry. Man, he plays hard. Man, he wants to be great. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing the frustration, watching him play, man, it inspires me. Because it reminds me of myself. Because um, I'm pissed off that I'm not better. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm mad that when I play a game, everyone, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good feeling, but it's also frustrating when you walk off the field and an older offensive lineman or an offensive line coach from the other team walks up to you and says, man, you're going to be a beast someday. You keep working, man, you're man. Oh man, you're awesome. And it's just like, you know, I want to be there already. Like, like how, how do I get there? And I, and I, and I see his frustration because he wants to be great. I, yeah. you know, watching you know, i was on social media the other day and i think cbs sports had a little thing on you know a couple of plays and it was the one hustle play that he makes on joe burrow near the near the goal line where he just tattoos joe burrow as he's going trying to lean in for the score and he causes a fumble yeah and I the play, yeah. score you know those types of game changing you know game ending two minute drive killing plays are the reason you play defensive end those game-changing, not many people can affect the game in a way that you can single-handedly thwart and take over. You know, you see the, you know, the, the clips of the Michael Strahan's that just, oh, the Reggie Weiss, oh, he just can't be blocked today, or Von Miller. It's like there are, there are very few players that have that, that ability to rise, to, to lift their level of play to that level as to where they can affect the game mm-hmm. like that. Chase Young is one of those guys. I mean, you know – I know he followed the Bosa brothers coming out and they're both very talented, extremely good players. Like he was a player of the year type players, but man, to me, the one that gets me the most excited is Chase Young. Me personally, you know, I'm doing my sports commentary videos on TikTok, and I did a video on my defense. I think it was defensive lineman in general. And part of it is, you know, throwing him in there because I know a lot of people have very high opinions of him because he's a young player and then a lot of people uh, they don't like hopping on a hype train and then they become anti that player because that player is so hyped up and beloved like I love watching him play I think like you said he's one of those players where he just steps onto the field and he changes the feeling of the field and what is taking place because we see a lot of other great players like Leonard Williams on the Giants who I you know I've watched every Giants home game he had, I think, mm-hmm. 12 and a half sacks last year. Yeah. You watch him step on the field, and it's it just not – while he's a great player, it's not the same thing as watching a talent like Chase Young step on the field. We even finished with, I think, less sacks. I think he only had, only, only had nine and a half last year. Along with the defensive line, the game was a lot different when you played as far as yeah. hits you're able to put on the quarterback, hits you're able to put on the running back. How do you see – the what what is your opinion on those rule changes um how many of those hits if you look back on it if the rules that are today were back on when you played how many of those hits do you think you would have been flagged on are there any that stick out (laughs) stick out in your head and what would it be like for you having to pass rush how do you think it is if you'd have to pass rush someone like Aaron Rodgers or Blaine Gabbert how do you see the NFL protecting the upper level versus you know I guess lower level no disrespect to them but well, the, well, there's always that, right? There's always the unspoken 
uh, discretionary actions of the referees and how closely they enforce or do not enforce certain calls. That part is always real. It will always be there. It's a perception thing. It's a human nature thing. It's not, it's not malice. It's not intended. It's just the way that it is. Bigger market team, star quarterback, you know, maybe as an, as a referee, you're a little heightened awareness. You know, you got Tom Brady back there, you know, when someone tries to talk some trash or take, take a cheap shot, you know, those things are maybe policed a little harder um, traditionally, but in terms of the rules and how they've, how the, how they've evolved through the years, man, I watch so many clips of hits on the quarterback that would have been 15 yards. I mean, I, that would have been fine. You know, because the rules were different. Like, if you were within a step, you know, of, of, of the quarterback, you could knock the crap out of him. And if, if you were actually hitting him while the ball was releasing his hand, you could you could literally, if you timed it right, you could take him off his feet and land on, t- and, and land on top of him still, even though the ball was gone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the helmet-to-helmet contacts, you couldn't, like, obviously could not spear Mm-hmm. a a quarterback but i could run full speed with my face into his face and tackle him not hitting with the, with the crown of my head like i could do that you do that now like you you can't even like you almost have to like you know like tackle a quarterback like this and take your head completely out of it like you're, none yeah. of your head can touch anything above like you know right there in your collarbone so completely different but i will say this there are more opportunities to rush the passer in today's game than there were 20 years ago um that's just a true statement because of uh, there's more passing in the game they protect the quarterbacks more and and because the, the quarterbacks are more protected and the receivers how you can actually hit defenseless players has also changed so they throw a lot more balls downfield than they would have thrown before. So mm-hmm. the, the, the vertical passing game has really opened up. That's why the numbers are higher. Completion percentages are up. Total yards are up. Receptions are up. It's, it's, it's become a, a league of volume. When I played, dude, like people weren't going to pass unless they had to to beat you. If they didn't have to pass the ball to beat you. They weren't going to do it. They're going to run the ball all day long, and it didn't matter. You had to, you know, play hard and get a lead or stop the run for three quarters and then you know eat. okay they're starting to pass okay now we start rushing and rushing to push the mm-hmm. quarterback it's like you know you had to you had to suffer through and get to that third and long in order to to get it but these days man it's you know it's wide open like i said they're it's they're they're passing every down they you know they run it it's just it's a different completely a different game but i think some of those rules should have been in place because you know for player safety Obviously, you know, you, you know, you can't just take a run and go and hit someone who's, you know, got their hands extended and, and put your head down and, you know, break a rib or whatever. But that's also it was also part of the, the deterrent of going over the middle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the rules have been changed to enhance the excitement of the game and and to keep fan interests and, you know, with fantasy football and everything else. I mean, it's it's a designed evolution of a sport for, you know, for outside selfish reasons that, you know, they want to enhance the game, but I have no problem with it. I mean, you know, I, I, at times I do, I, I know I do sound like the old crusty guy that remembers, you know, mm-hmm. we used to be able to hit quarterbacks and clobber them. You can't hit quarterbacks anymore. And, 
And it frustrates me at times because, you know, when I'm watching a team that I'm rooting for play and someone gets a, a silly penalty where, you know, they like are trying to avoid the quarterback at all costs and they barely run into him with their chin and it's 15 yards. And I'm like, come on, dude. Use like where's that discretion yeah. of you as an referee? <laughs> Come on, man. We're all like we all love football. We grew up watching it. What are you doing making that call? So, I, I definitely have issues with you know some of these new mm-hmm. rule changes. But you know, it's still still the sport of kings, man. Still the best sport out there. I'm gonna loosely connect this to something you just said. You mentioned fantasy football briefly, and uh-huh. my my last question is: it's a big something that I've connected with in the media when I see players go through it. Uh, it's something I connect with because I've been through four surgeries on both my shoulders and both my hips. Do you think the media kind of misrepresents how difficult it is for a player to make it through an injury or deal with an injury? Cause we see some players that are like Adrian Peterson who tear their ACL and then have the bet one of the best seasons by running back ever. But then we kind of see guys like, Cam Newton, who I think just recently even on his Instagram said he hasn't been the same since 2016 when he first dislocated his shoulder. And you kind of can see it in his production on the field because they throw out these timelines like they're doctors. They say four months for this. And then uh, um, someone who doesn't know much about medicine may read that and be, oh, he's going to be back. He's going to be back and better than ever. What is your kind of opinion on how the media represents injuries? I think it's the media's job to first and foremost put out the facts, but I think to be speculatory as to how a player will return mm-hmm. is completely by a player to player basis. There's no exact science. If someone tells you that someone's going to be good or as good or better, they're, 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 they're selling you a bill of goods <laughs> just mm-hmm. to put it, to put it lightly. It's a player by player basis because rehab is one of those things that is probably one of the worst processes that you'll go through trying to rehab for anything. And I know you've gone, you've had injury and you tried to rehab, but the amount of fear that you have as a professional athlete with so much on your shoulders, your very livelihood you know, you're, you're driving an expensive car going back to your expensive house and you got your kids at private schools and you know, your wife is driving an expensive car and you got this, 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 whatever you've created on your shoulders. And here you are with a bum knee and you have to get from the operating table back to world-class performance. I'm talking not just good, not just able to live not just able to play racquetball or, you know, walk the dog. I'm talking perform at a level where other people are trying to kill you. That is such an unknown, uncharted area that is germane and specific to each and every player. We all hit adversity differently, okay? We all react differently when we get punched in the face. Mm-hmm. And hit with, hit with that adversity... There's no way to say that someone can be, you know, as good or better than they were before. I had a herniated disc in my back in year five, and it was an off-season procedure where I had a, I had a micro discectomy between L4, L5, and I had a scar about that long on my back. And I came back the next season. That was right after Super Super Bowl. I'd led the league in sacks. I had 17 sacks that year. I came back the next season, had 11 sacks. 
you know what I'm saying? So I was still good and I didn't miss a beat, kept going. Rehab is not an exact science. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, you just, you just do you really, really don't know. That's why some people have come back, like you said, and been like Adrian Peterson, you know, you've seen, you know, JJ Watt has been plagued by injury, right. And in his career, but when he's on the field, he's as good as he ever was. So, you know, there's something to be said for how a player approaches it and how they rehab because, the NFL is, is like a bullet train that's leaving out of the station each and every year. And it is moving at light speed. If you're not moving at light speed, you, you're, you, you feel fall behind. If you haven't improved from one year to the next, if you haven't found something that you can improve your body or improve your IQ or your understanding, the game will leave you behind. I, I just as a fan, I, I, I feel bad for some players sometimes. You see them getting dragged in the media just like last year. Kyler Murray was having an MVP like season. He was having season better than Lamar Jackson's MVP season. And then he hurt, I want to say his AC joint, but something in his throwing shoulder. And mm-hmm. then the Cardinals and him kind of fell off and we're like, Oh, he's not that good. Even you see throwing a random name out there, but I think pro football focuses top quarterback list. He's more towards the back of that when he was coming right. out of the first half of the season when it was, MVP like and I just think people under and that's an injury that's very recoverable from it's not a labor mm-hmm. or a rotator cuff I think people just don't give enough credit to how difficult it is to play through an injury sometimes from that extremely standpoint. yeah e- extremely it's it's psychologically it's 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 as hard as any psychological barrier that you've ever faced in your life especially and sometimes it's it's it's, it's even worse because the stakes are so high Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I mean, talking about the, the psychological drama associated with the weight on your shoulders just for the life you lead, just for the livelihood that you've created. I mean, if, if you, you know, I, I think Biggie Small said it, you know, either you're slinging crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot. You know, it's like if you if, if you haven't if you haven't set up your life or saved your money or, you know, got a Ph.D. or an engineering degree or own a Fortune 500 company or done something, I mean, there's not many other things that you're going to be able to do that's going to earn you the type of livelihood that you've constructed for yourself. So what if you can't do that anymore? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. how yeah. does your life change? Where are you in your career? All those things are such viable things. I had had a great career up to that point playing for the Rams and I won a world championship, but I was faced with the fact that I might never be the same again after year five, mm-hmm. you know, I was coming off a pro bowl season. So I responded, came back, you know, and, and played nine more years in the NFL, never to miss a game. But that was a testament to how good my rehab was and how dedicated I was to, to, to you know, to getting back to form. And it is difficult. And I've, I had, you know, numerous things during my career that, man, they make you look in the mirror and question yourself and you got to pull it out. You got to, you got to construct it. You got to get it back. And you not only have to get the, you know, the, the integrity, physical integrity of whatever you injure back to, to speed, you've got to get this <laughs> back to speed. Yeah. This right here, man, it's like, you know, you see people who are have all the ability in the world, but they play slowly, you know, mm. and, and you got some people that aren't, you know, that aren't that fast. Like I swear, and Marshall Falk wasn't that fast. He was, he was the slowest player you never catch. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yeah. and, 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 but I'm just, so, you, you know, you, how 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 people process and see the game 
you know, that's that's the speed of the game that, that takes adjusting to that. And you never know, man, like how people are going to react to being out there and having to put the reckless abandon and the regard for your own safety of your body. You have to truly put it aside. You have to be fearless and, and go in headstrong into the fire, ready to, to for whatever happens. And doing that after being injured is mm-hmm. easier said than done. Just to say one more thing with as far as like the slowest guy that you'll never catch, like this is also like it's such a difference between a football player and track speed because you watch Justin Jefferson now, who was just a rookie last year. I say only, I know it's flying, but I think he's only a four or five guy. And on, yeah. the, fo- on the football field, it's not exactly a 40 that wows you when you see it at the combine, yet he had, uh, I think, 1,400 yards or even yeah. even Odell. And I say only, I know it's still flying in the grand scheme of things. He was coming out of the combine, was only a 4-2, 4-3 guy. Yet there's nobody can catch him, especially even saw it last year, a little bit later in his career now, where he takes the end round against the Cowboys for right. however many yards, ran 15 yards into the backfield and still scores. And yet mm-hmm. there's some guys who have the 4-2 speed, like John Ross broke the record, yet he hasn't, not yet at least, I don't want to jinx him, but he hasn't made his impact on the league yet from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, you know, a lot of it has to do with timing, how you're featured. Um, your understanding of your scheme and the ability to get open and the time it takes, you know, for the play to open up, you know, based upon the coverage that you see. So there's yeah. so many things that, 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 that go into it. And, you know, that chemistry, that connection, that's what we talk so much about, you know, the off season. It's, we talk so much about, you know, building that chemistry on the field, you know, and it's, it's 10,000 hours, right. It's, it's, you know, it takes, takes the master something, but, there's no replacement for time and repetition. And, and, and I think, you know, really, really good example there with John Ross, like, man, he's a guy that, you know, I, like, I love watching him. He's a, I'm like, yeah. he's a guy I'm talking, you know, top level route runner. He's a Jerry Rice type kid student of the game. I'm like, man, this, this kid's going to be, you know, but like you said, you know, you got to figure out a way to make it work and make yeah. it a valuable, viable, you know, piece of your your puzzle so yeah. um that, that's definitely something that i think most people kind of take for granted they say oh well he, he runs a four two he's gonna be just plug him in and plug and play and we know that that isn't always the case because great players come from all over and they have vastly different 40 times <laughs> yeah i mean dk's 40 time was incredible kevin white a few years ago for the bears his 40 time was incredible but he wound up his nfl career wound up not panning out so mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's definitely it's definitely something where it proves time and time again that forty or combine results don't necessarily mean that much. No, they don't. And and field speed is you know playing speed is different than 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 handheld clock speed and and also football IQ like it, it it accounts for so much more than just you know your understanding of the game. It also affects how quickly and how fast you process and play the game. You know that's mm-hmm. why someone like Tom Brady who processes at such a, such a high level when you see these quarterbacks, you know, Drew Brees, Drew Brees didn't have the arm strength at the end of his career. You know, Peyton Manning didn't have the arm strength at the end of his career, yeah. you know, but their, their timing with, with routes and crossing routes and, and, you know, getting the balls into space, throwing people open, you know, that, that talent increased as their throwing ability, you know, to zip the ball in there was taken away. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's different ways to manufacture and bring it together, but obviously, you know, 
there's so many things that go into either making you a viable player or not. And obviously, you know, your football IQ, I, I think, has a lot to do with that. Yeah, well, I greatly appreciate the time you've given me today. Uh, yeah, man. Hour and a half. I greatly appreciate that. <laughs> I greatly, good. I greatly appreciate you kind of pushing me on it. I do really enjoy the media and the whole world that you're now involved in and your post career. Cause I obviously am not going to get to live out any type of athletic dreams. <laughs> I may, may have once had as a high school athlete or middle school athlete. So I appreciate it to anyone who yeah. may be watching this. That has been the interview. Leave a comment, like the video, subscribe, maybe try and get some more interviews in the future. And once again, I appreciate it, Kevin, for you doing this with me. Tristan, it was truly a pleasure, man. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, go Rams. Yeah, <laughs> say go Rams. Are the Rams still number one for you? The Rams still have a special place in, in, in my heart um, as mm-hmm. an organization because that's who I won a Super Bowl with. Um, but I was really lucky. I was blessed to play for some good head coaches. I played mm-hmm. for Dick Vermeil. I played for Jeff Fisher. I played for Nick Saban during the Nick Saban experiment, and and I played for John Gruden. So mm-hmm. I had some, I had some good, some good coaches that I that I rubbed elbows with. All right, well, I, I appreciate it. Anytime, man. Anytime. Well, let's do it again sometime. <laughs>